I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious God, Heavenly Father, we come before you now and we pray that by your Holy Spirit you would guide us, that you would take hold of our mind, and that you would enable us to focus upon your word, to understand your word rightly. But we also pray, Lord God, that as we walk through this text and as we continue to walk through this chapter, Lord, we pray that you would enable us to bow before your word. We pray that the Holy Spirit would remap our our thinking, That, uh, that the ideas... the culture in which we live would be dispelled. We pray that by your Holy Spirit, we would be desirous and willing to have our thoughts and our experiences and our our rationale and our logic governed by Scripture and not the other way around. So, Father, we do pray that you would uh, grant us humble hearts in a humble spirit, to bow before your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So a bit of a disclosure before I begin. This this message, because of the text, is uh, primarily directed at singles. Uh, whether you're an adult or a child, uh, simply because that is who Paul is addressing. He's been addressing the married for quite some time, but now he's going to take a moment to address those who are not yet married, or maybe have been married, but uh, are not now for whatever reason. And in saying that, I want to start with a couple of texts that I want to read to you. In Psalm 42, the psalmist says this, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, 
for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? The imagery that the psalmist uses cannot be lost on us. As a deer pants for flowing streams of water. Have you ever seen a deer pant? It doesn't happen often. And yet the psalmist says, as a deer pants for flowing streams of water, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? The psalmist cannot wait for this life to be over. And someday stand in the presence of his God and worship. And he longs for that in the way that a deer would pant for water. In Acts chapter 20, the Apostle Paul says this. Acts chapter 20, verse 24, Paul says this. I do not count my life of any value, nor is precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. What an amazing statement. I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. Now, I began by saying that this message is primarily for the singles, but it's certainly something that should land on all of us. For those who have children and are wanting to raise them in the ways of the Lord and point them in the right direction. For those to whom others may come seeking advice. The words of the psalmist and the words of the apostle Paul should land on all of us with the weight with which it was intended. I do not account my life of any value or as precious to myself. In other words, Paul says, I don't care about the comforts of this world. I don't care about the things that this world values. I don't care how people treat me or what people think of me. The only thing Paul cares about is living for the glory of God. Jesus will say in John chapter 4, verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. In other words, Jesus was saying the thing that drives me, the thing that gives me energy, the thing that gets me out of bed in the morning, the thing that keeps me going through life is doing the will of God my Father. Living for the glory of God. These are some powerful statements that we see in the Bible. 
You see, these three individuals, the psalmists, Paul, and Jesus, understood and grasped with the whole of their life two important truths. Two truths that I hope and pray by the end of this message you will understand and cling to with the whole of your life. And the first thing that these three individuals understood was this. They exist for the glory of God. From Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43, verses 6 and 7. God says this, I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. He's talking about believers. He's talking about his people. He's talking about his children. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. Believers were and are created for the glory of God. To live for His glory, to live for His honor, to live for His praise, to live for His worship. It's what the psalmist understood. It's what Paul understood. It's certainly what Christ understood. The second truth that they understood that I hope that we will understand and grasp this morning is that fullness of joy can only be found in God. David writes in Psalm 1611, In your presence, O God, is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. In your presence, is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Yet so often, Christians are like the half-hearted creatures that C.S. Lewis famously described in his well-known quote. C.S. Lewis once wrote this, We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We are far too easily pleased. Too often we settle, believers, too often believers settle for the things of this world to bring us joy. And not just the sinful things of this world. See, that's where our mind tends to go. Not just talking about sex or drugs or alcohol or television or whatever else. 
But so often believers seek to find their joy and their contentment even in the good things of this world. In our marriage, in our children, in our vocation. We are too easily pleased. We are half-hearted creatures seeking to find our joy in the things of this life when God offers us infinite joy and satisfaction and contentment. Paul understood this so well that he is trying his hardest to convince his readers to take hold of this truth, grasp onto it. Not just in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, but throughout the Pauline epistles and his words from the book of Acts, we see that. Let me read to you some of the statements of Paul, and you don't have to follow along. I'm just going to read them quickly so that you can sort of get a flavor of what drove Paul in his life. He said in Acts chapter 20, verse 24, I've already read that to you, but I want to read it to you again. In Acts 20, 24, Paul says, I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, Paul said this, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I don't want to know anything but Christ. I just want to know Christ and Him crucified. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, Paul said, If we are out of our minds, it is for Christ's sake. If we are in our right minds, it is for your sake. For the love of Christ compels us. Paul said, I am compelled by Christ's love for me. Paul lived a radical life of zeal for the glory of Christ because he looked at the cross of Christ and was so amazed that God would do that for him, it compelled him to live the whole of his life devoted to God. He simply could not see that anything less would do. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, Paul said, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I view all things as lost. I view everything in this world as rubbish, as pointless, as a waste of time in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. In Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, Paul said, I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret, Paul says. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance, 
and need. In other words, Paul says, in whatever situation I am in, whatever struggles I'm going through, whatever trial I am experiencing, Paul says, I always experience the joy and the satisfaction of knowing Christ. He says, I have found the secret. Well, what secret is that, you might ask? Paul found his contentment and fullness of joy in Christ, in knowing Christ, in serving Christ, in pursuing Christ, and nothing else. In the end, this is what Paul wants his readers to understand from our text. Look at verse 32 of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy, body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. Now recall that this passage comes on the heels of the end of verse 31 where Paul says, for the present form of this world is passing away. In other words, we are living in desperate times. We are living in the last days. We are living in the last of the last days, and nothing in this world is going to last. None of our material possessions, none of our accomplishments, none of our degrees, none of our certificates, our spouse, our children, our health, our beauty, job. It's all temporary. The only thing that is eternal is God. Christ is the only thing that will last forever. And so Paul says, I want to spare you from the anxieties of this world. And so to do that, Paul gives us an honest assessment of marriage in this text. Now, to be clear, and I've said this before, but I'm going to say it again, Paul does not have a low view of marriage. He doesn't. Just go and read Ephesians 5, 22 and following. You'll see that Paul has a very lofty view of marriage. Paul understands the importance of marriage, the theological significance of marriage. He understands that marriage is designed to be a reflection to the world of that relationship between Christ and his church. It's a visible reminder to us, or at least it should be a visible reminder to us when a marriage is functioning properly, of the relationship between Christ and the church. Christ is the head of the church. He leads the church. He shepherds the church. The church submits to his leadership. But not only there, but we see that marriage is so significant that God uses the institution of marriage as an ecclesial 
for all of redemptive history. The entire Bible is bookend with marriage. The Bible begins with marriage in Genesis chapter 2 between Adam and Eve. And then the Bible ends with marriage in Revelation 22 between Christ and his bride, the great wedding feast. And then throughout all of redemptive history, God uses the image of marriage to relate to his people. In the Old Testament, God often refers to the people of Israel as his wife that he bought, that he redeemed. In the New Testament, Christ is called the bridegroom. The church is his bride, whom someday he will wed in Revelation 22. We also see that some of the most important teachings on marriage come from the hand of Paul. You study marriage, you're going to read a lot of Pauline writings. So Paul does not have a low view of marriage. I want to be clear about that. Still, Paul understands that marriage is not commanded anywhere in Scripture. Nowhere are humans commanded to marry. And you say, well, what of the creation ordinance in Genesis 121? God commands Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth. The creation ordinance is not a command to every adult to marry, but a command to every married couple to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The creation ordinance tells us that children are not optional for those who marry. But marriage is not commanded. Remember, Adam and Eve were already married. God did not have to command them to get married. Secondly, if marriage is commanded or expected by God for every person, then Jesus sinned by not marrying. The only possible exception would be 1 Timothy 5.14, where Paul encourages younger widows to marry and to bear children. But even there, the language is not worded as a command, but as a strong recommendation, much as he's been doing in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 regarding singleness. Thus, in our text, Paul cites the pros and the cons of singleness versus marriage. And they are there, right? If you've been married for any length of time, you know that marriage is not all bells and whistles. There are cons to marriage, just as there are cons to being single. I understand that. I get that. But notice what Paul says in verse 32. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. The married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. Now, first of all, the Greek word for anxious is a little misleading. It is the Greek word meramnao, and it is a word that carries both a negative and a positive connotation. And it can, it can mean, literally, it basically means to think about, to consider, to have this on your mind. But it can be both negative and positive. Because Paul is not saying that the unmarried man is worried about the things of the Lord. One of the best examples 
that we see is in uh, Philippians chapter 2. Philippians uh, chapter 2, verse uh, 20, because these two verses are in close proximity to one another, and this is the writings of Paul as well. Philippians 2, 20, so while in verse 19, Paul says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. Then he says in verse 20, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. The word concern there is the same Greek word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 7.32. I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned about your welfare. So that's a good thing. But then we'll see that Paul uses the same word in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known God, don't don't fret. Don't worry about things. Give it to God. Make your request known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your mind and your thoughts. And so he says, the married person is concerned about worldly things. The unmarried person is concerned about the things of God. The married person is concerned about worldly things. Again, don't be misled. We hear that term and we tend to think negative, right? Worldly thing. Oh, so Paul is saying marriage is bad, right? Marriage is a worldly thing. We don't want to do that. Paul is simply talking about the things of the world is what he means. The things of this world. And if you're married, your spouse is one of the things of this world. They were born into this world. They are physical. They are the things of this world world. Thus, Paul is saying that the unmarried man or woman is able to focus on the things of God. They're able to focus on the things of God, how to please God, how to be holy in body and in spirit, which is the same thing. Paul is not offering a different standard for women. To be holy in body and spirit is to please the Lord. To please the Lord is to be holy in body, what we do with this body, and in our spirit. Paul is just not wanting to be redundant like a good writer and use the same word over and over. But the married person, Paul says, has their attention divided. And he's right. You see, because the single person is able to burn the candle at both ends for the glory of God, whereas the married person simply cannot. Because the married person has a spouse to think about. They have children, if they have children. They have a family to think about. But the single person like Paul, Paul didn't have anyone else to think about. Paul could go wherever he felt the Lord was leading him. He could do whatever he thought God was calling him to do. It didn't matter if he was in prison or out of prison or if he had been beaten or not beaten. His life was wholly devoted to the glory of God. Whereas the married person cannot do that. And Paul has already said that to us, right? Chapter 7, verses 3 and following. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. 
Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another. Don't deprive one another. We could take that and extend it. He's not just talking about sexual relations, but paying attention to one another, ministering to one another, serving one another. We see that in all of the Pauline passages where he deals with marriage. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 and 22 and following, he says, Wives are to submit to their husbands as the church submits unto Christ, which means what? Paying attention to what your husband needs, what, how you can help him, how you can be a helpmate, what can you do for him, how can you be there for him. Then he goes on to say, verses 25 and following, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, sacrificially washing her in the word of God so that he might present her without spot or wrinkle or any such thing to Christ at the day of judgment. He's got to pay attention to his wife. He has to disciple her. He has to minister to her. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, fathers are commanded to instruct your children in the word of God. Titus chapter 2, women are commanded to teach the younger women to care for their children, to be workers at home. Everywhere we see where the, past, where the Bible talks about marriage and what it's to look like, the picture is very clear. Husbands and wives are to serve and minister to one another and to strive to meet one another's needs. That's biblical. But for that reason, married people cannot burn the candle at both ends. They simply cannot. The married man who is, wants to do all that he can for the glory of God cannot get off of work and then simply go do door-to-door evangelism until midnight, come home, go to sleep, wake up the next morning and do it all over again. He can't get out of bed every Saturday morning and leave all day long evangelizing and doing street witnessing and preaching at the city parks and then come home to his wife and kids and do that every single Saturday. He may make an impact on a lot of people that are out there, but he will be committing a grievous sin in the eyes of God by neglecting his family. But you know what? The single person can do that. Now, of course, all of that is ministry as well, right? Ministering to our spouse and to our children is ministry. It is God-honoring. And you may think, well, can't we still sort of burn the candle at both ends in, in that regard? Well, no, you can't. Because while ministering to your spouse and your children is ministry, it is God-honoring, it is pleasing, it is commanded, it takes away from the time that you can minister to the broader church and to the unbelieving world that is out there. So the counsel that I often give to those who are um, desiring to marry or are, if I'm going through marriage counseling with them, I often share with them the words of uh, James Dobson, actually, who once said that when you go into marriage, you need to go into marriage with your eyes wide open. You need to know who you're marrying, know everything about them, know not just their belief, not just their testimony, know, know their value. Do they value the same things that you do? Because marriage is for a lifetime. And so once you get married, you then have to go through marriage with your eyes half shut. 
right? You have to learn to extend grace and overlook one another's flaws. Here, Paul is saying that even when considering marriage, even if there isn't another significant person in your life, when considering marriage, when thinking about marriage, Paul is saying, think about marriage, single folks, with your eyes wide open. Because when you get married, you forfeit the right to do what you want with your body and with your life. Because Paul made it clear at the beginning of chapter 7 that when you're married, your body is not your own. Your life is not your own. It belongs, number one, to Christ, but number two, to your spouse. You cannot do what your life, with your life, whatever you want, even if it is for the glory of God because you're married. But those who are single can devote the whole of their life to the glory of God. And when you get married, marriage is for a lifetime, and you can never go back. So Paul says, think about marriage with your eyes wide open. For this reason, parents often do their children a great disservice by drilling it into their heads throughout their lives, not always directly, but oftentimes indirectly, implicitly, we do our children a great disservice by drilling it into their minds as they are growing up that marriage is normal and expected. We do that by saying things like, when you get married, when you have children, when you give me grandchildren, the message is clear, isn't it? This is what's expected of you. This is what is normal. When Paul actually prefers singleness over marriage. We also do a great disservice to our adult children when they reach the age of 30 and we wonder out loud, what is wrong with you? Why can't you find someone to marry? as if marriage is commanded or expected. Maybe they don't want to get married. Maybe God hasn't called them to marry. We do a great job of allowing our children to decide their career path, don't we? You know, you just got to find what you like. You know, make sure you find an interest and you can pursue that. We do a great job on letting them choose what university they'll go to. You know, we'll, we'll help you weigh the pros and cons, but I understand if you want to, you can't decide between this university and that university. Well, you know, it, it's up to you. We do a great job in allowing them to choose their hobbies or their sports, you know. Whatever sport you want to play, you know, you just want to stick with it. But when it comes to marriage, no, 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 you're getting married. And you're giving us grandkids. And if you don't, we're going to think something is wrong with you. Paul's first point then is this, marriage is a distraction to being wholly devoted to God. That is what he's saying. Marriage is a distraction to being wholly devoted in every aspect of your life to God. And the second point he makes is in verse 35, which is simply this, devote the whole of your life to Christ if you can. Because marriage is a distraction to being wholly devoted to God, his second point in verse 35, and here's where the punch is, devote the whole of your life to Christ 
if you are able. That's Paul's message for single people. Because you see, for those of us who are married, that ship has sailed. That ship has sailed. We can devote as much as we can to the glory of Christ, but we cannot burn the candle at both ends. Notice what he says in verse 35. I say this for your benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you. I say this for your benefit, Paul says. I'm not trying to lay an additional burden on you. I know there are some out there who are thinking, it sure feels like one. My goodness, you're telling me if I'm single, I should stay this way? Parents are covering their kids' ears. Paul says, I say this for your benefit. This is important because Paul is, is saying that he's not commanding singleness. Right? We need to be clear about that. I say this for your benefit. Paul is not commanding singleness. And he has said that already several times. Back in verses 8 and 9, to the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Paul says, get married if you really want to get married. Look at verses 26 to 28. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. So Paul, understand, is not commanding singleness. He's not doing that. Paul is saying this for our benefit. The question is, how? How does this benefit us, Paul, to follow this advice, suggestion, this strong recommendation from the Apostle Paul? Two ways. Number one, to promote good order. You see that in your text, right? But to promote good order. The Greek word there, eskumon, kind of a weird-sounding word, is uh, kind of rare in the New Testament. It only appears five times in the New Testament text. Elsewhere, it is most commonly translated into our English as prominent or high-standing, used usually in, in reference to members of the synagogue, prominent members of the synagogue or women of high standing. You see that, for example, in Acts 13.50, also in Acts 17.12, if you want to just look those up later. But the point is that by Paul using this word, he wants to encourage his readers to live the Christian life to the highest possible standard, to the greatest degree live for the glory of God. And he knows the only way you can really do that is to be single. If you really want to live your life to the greatest degree possible for the glory of God, Paul says, don't get married. And then you can burn the candle at both ends for the glory of God. 
The second reason he believes this is for our benefit. If you're single, for your benefit. If you're a parent, for the benefit of your children. The second reason he says is this, to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. That's why I titled the message this morning as I did, A Life Devoted to God. To secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Paul wants Christians to devote the whole of their life to Christ. To not be divided. I got I to gotta pay attention to my, my spouse, my kids, and I don't want to serve. And, and these two are often in conflict with another, one another. I can't find the balance. I spend too much time with the family, and the church says, why don't you serve more? I spend too much time with the church, and the spouse says, you're never home. It's a struggle. The struggle is real. Paul says, I want to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. And he says this because he believes that this will bring them the greatest joy in life, and it will bring God the greatest glory. So why would you not want to do that, and why would you not want that for your children? So the point is that if we truly believe that, we truly believe the text that I opened up with at the beginning of this message, that our greatest joy can only be found in Christ, in knowing Christ, in pursuing Christ, and that we can bring God the greatest glory by devoting the whole of our life to Christ, then why don't we do that? Why don't singles do that? Why do married couples constantly encourage singles to find a spouse? And why do we pressure our children to get married? You see, because remaining single and committing the whole of our lives to the glory of Christ brings God the greatest glory because it communicates to the world that I find my greatest joy and satisfaction in God alone. I don't need anything else. I don't need anyone else. I have God, and he is more than I could ever desire. In the end, in the end, the Apostle Paul believes that singleness is preferred over marriage. Though singleness is not commanded, and he does not have a low view of marriage, he is very clear, if you desire to marry, don't squelch that. You ought to get married. But Paul clearly prefers singleness over marriage in order to live a life devoted to God and to live holy for the glory of God. But ultimately, Paul's point for everybody, whether you are married or single, here's where the message applies to everyone. Devote the whole of your life to knowing Christ, to loving Christ, to serving Christ, to pursuing Christ, because only there will you find your greatest joy and satisfaction. You're not going to find it in the things of this world out there. You're certainly not going to find it in the sinful activities that the world offers you, 
but you're also not going to find your greatest joy and satisfaction in your spouse or in your children or in your vocation. You will only find that in pursuing Christ. And so Paul exhorts the readers that we ought to do exactly that. Let's pray. Our gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that you would help us to, uh, to remap our minds. This is a topic that can be difficult for many to wrap their minds around. But we know that your word is truth. We know that your apostle Paul spoke truth. He spoke on behalf of Christ himself. So, Father, we pray that you would enable us to have a biblical view of marriage and singleness, Lord. We pray that you would help us as parents to instill a biblical view into our children, Lord. In the end, we pray that you would enable us to humble ourselves before your word. And whether we are married or single, we pray that you would enable all of us to find our greatest joy in Christ, in pursuing Christ, and in becoming more like Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.